0: Mark Feinstein, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Jason McLeod has been working in professional baseball for two and a half decades, beginning his career in the Padres baseball operations department. He went on to coach in the organization for three years before returning to the front office, settling into a scouting and player development path. McLeod moved to the Boston Red Sox in 2003, and within two years, he became the team's amateur scouting director, overseeing the selection of players, including Dustin Pedroia, Anthony Rizzo, Jacoby Ellsbury, Jed Lowry, Clay Buchholz, and Josh Reddick, among others. He would return to the Padres in the same capacity in late 2009, overseeing a Padres draft in 2011 that produced 10 big league players. After joining the Cubs in November of 2011, McLeod's first three drafts in Chicago saw him select Albert Almora Jr., Chris Bryan, and Kyle Schwarber all in the first round. With the 2019 MLB draft just days away, It seemed like the right time to sit down with McLeod and discuss his career, the draft process, his future goals, and much more. Enjoy this conversation with Cubs Senior Vice President of Scouting and Player Development, Jason McLeod. Jason, you were born in Hawaii, raised in San Diego, played high school ball with Dave Roberts. did. Was baseball always your first love?
1: It was. uh, Just growing up as a kid, actually from my mom. My mom really got me into it. Uh, my dad was in the military, so we moved around a lot, but San Diego primarily uh, was where where I was raised and yeah, through my mom, really. She was a big Padre fan uh, as we were growing up, even as we were moving around the country and funny stories, uh, two of my dad's uh, places he got stationed, one was in Reno when they had the Reno Padres there. My mom actually had this old program I found years later, I had autographs from Kevin Towers when he was in Reno and obviously Benito, Santiago and those guys. But we actually went from there to Yuma, which had a Marine Corps air station. And, uh, of course, the Padres were having spring training in Yuma at that time. And we moved there in 84, the year the Padres uh, went to the World Series. So, for me, that was just, that was great. I was in 8th and ninth grade and getting to walk all the backfields, meeting my hero at the time, Tony Gwynn, who remained my hero. Uh, it was a special time. Now, I read your great-great-uncle was Carl Hubble, the Hall of Fame pitcher. Yeah, so the, the story on that was um, – my dad never knew who his biological father was, and my grandmother uh, married uh, George Hubble when my dad was about uh, I want to say ten or eleven years old. and he raised my dad from that point forward and uh, he's the only grandfather I ever have ever known and his uncle was Carl Hubble. so um, I grew up getting a lot of information on King Carl and what a screwball was and, and all that so. Uh, yeah, that's how that story came up.
0: You, uh, you attended junior college, got drafted by the Astros in the 44th round of the 91 draft. Were you, were you hopeful that, that a pro career was going to be in your
1: future? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, you know, I was pretty decent for a you know, high school pitcher in the San Diego area. Um, yeah, I had an opportunity to go to San Diego State. I really wanted to sign, and um, I got drafted out of high school, didn't sign, went to junior college. Uh, admittedly at the time studies weren't the first thing on my mind then <laughs> I just wanted to play baseball had a had the opportunity to to sign with Houston uh, Bob King was was my scout and just a wonderful man and um, found out pretty quickly I was not a big fish in a small pond <laughs> once I signed but uh, just grateful for the experience for sure so you joined the Padres as an intern in 1994 once mm-hmm. your playing career was over
0: um, what were your early hopes in terms of a, a career path working on the front office side of the game.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously at that time you, you have these grand visions and dreams of becoming a general manager and running a team. And, you know, in those days the front offices were so much smaller. They didn't have these um, internship programs that, that you see all over the league today. And so I was very fortunate through a, um, a contact through my sister, actually, that, that knew a gentleman. Actually his name's Dave Zidelis, who is the general manager, I believe, in Fredericksburg or Frederick for the Orioles. Um, he was running community relations at the time and brought me on as his intern. So I was doing a lot of you know, fan mail responses, in-game experience, things like that for the Padres, which, if you remember, 1994 was not a very good year for no. us. So I was upgrading fans from the outfield seats, the two that I found out in the outfield seats uh, when we were drawing 9,000 a game. But but what was, what was great for me at that time was Kevin Towers was the scouting director. Um, On my free time, I would just go volunteer anything I could do for him on that side. And Priscilla Oppenheimer was the uh, director of minor league operations. And Priscilla let me help her put together the the minor league player manual for that coming year. And uh, KT was great. He let me go out and help him run tryout camps and just go sit by him sometimes when he was scouting games in Southern California. So it was a great opportunity for me, even though I wasn't over on the baseball side. I was still... Able to get some access to the people over there, and, and it was very beneficial.
0: Now you stayed with the Padres. You were actually coached in their minor league system for three years before returning to front office and scouting. Did you ever consider coaching as a, a potential career?
1: Not, not necessarily. You know it, that was a wonderful time for me. Uh, the funny thing is, I was a pitcher, and uh, when when Kevin talked to me one off about the possibility of becoming a, a minor league hitting coach, I was. It was just like whoa, yeah. I didn't. That's not my background, but you know, thankfully um, Merv Ratman, the hitting, major league hitting coach at the time, um, he would work out of the stadium, and Tony would be there all the time. Tony Gwynn, and so a lot of the major league players that lived in the area would come down to Qualcomm and hit there four or five days a week, and so I had the great benefit of just sitting in the cage and listening for a couple of hours, three, four days a week, all off season. Um, and that was an invaluable experience. And then I went out to 1996. I was in Peoria with the Padres and then spent the next two years in, in A-ball in California. And, you know, I, I just did as much as I could to learn. learn about hitting, really evaluating players as well. And uh, whether it was our guys or the other players on the other teams, I always wrote reports and just really started honing my evaluation skills at, 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 at that time.
0: So when you return to the front office, you're Assistant Director of Scouting and Player Development. Uh, you mentioned you're an area scout as well. Is there a specific skill set that makes for a better scout, or is that something that you can learn if you just put in enough
1: time? I definitely think there's a, just a learning aspect of, of growing your your library, so to speak, and seeing how many, you know, the more players you see, you're going to build a bigger Rolodex, you're going to build a bigger library. Um, I definitely think that... You've got to have somewhat of a humility to it and understanding that when you walk into the ballpark, you're there for a reason. You're there because there are players that have ability, have a talent talent on the field. Um, I think scouts can get into a rut sometimes of whether it's the volume of reports, whether it's because of the travel and what they've had to do to get to the game, where they can go in sometimes almost with a negative attitude about it. Um, so I always tried to remind myself that I'm showing up today because – there's a kid here that has talent of some type on this field, so I want to uh, see what that is. And obviously, we're all projecting what we think he'll be and what the upside is. But um, I definitely think the guys who that I've been around have uh, had a humility to them, have had more of a uh, you know positive outlook and, and being able to dream a little bit. But at the same time, you know, keeping an objectiveness about it and and you know trying to pick them apart at the same time. And I think there's a fine balance to that.
0: Fast forward to 2004, after several years with the Padres, you joined the Red Sox uh, as director of amateur scouting. How did your move to the Red Sox come about?
1: Yeah, you know, Theo had left um, the Padres, I believe, in 2002, and um, that was my first year as a full time area scout. Uh, it was 02. And, you know, leading up to that point, of course, we by that time had spent a lot of time with KT and, and really had. You had the great opportunity to, to talk through major league transactions, to go watch minor league players evaluate them. Uh, Brad Sloan and, and Chief Gayton had given us this great opportunity to go see players ourselves and, and start honing our evaluation skills. So by the time Theo had left, of course, he and I had a lot of conversations over the years about just roster construction, things like that. So um, as he had now gotten into his first full year as general manager, in Boston, you know, I think he and Josh Burns were, were looking to uh, revamp how they were running their scouting operation over there, and, and uh, I was part of the interview process of who they wanted to bring in to see, you know, what what they could possibly do to, to make that happen, and so they brought me on in um, October of I believe two thousand three, and uh, yeah, we started the process of of building new. Yeah, a new scout not not scouting staff we had very talented people over there but in terms of like uh, infrastructure and processes that we wanted to put in place and uh yeah I, I was nervous so to speak to go over there i was 32 years old at the time and and uh hadn't cut my teeth in scouting alone uh, certainly hadn't put in the years that a, that a lot of our scouts had over there but um you know, through a lot of hard work and just building relationships and trust with the staff, uh, I thought we did a very good job.
0: So you joined them in October of 2003, which has got to be within a week or 10 days after the Aaron Boone game. Yes. Was, there still, was that was <laughs> that still resonating around the office when you got well, there?
1: My official hire date was actually the day that Booney hit that, hit that walk-off home <laughs> and run. And they didn't
0: blame you. That's good.
1: And yeah. And so, yeah, I actually, Theo had said, hey, just come fly here and meet us. You know, if we if we get to the World Series and all of this, and so my bags were packed. I'm in San Diego. Booney hits the home run, and I'm like, "Well, I think I'm going to let things settle for a few days before I show up in Boston." So.
0: so, your first season with the Red Sox is 2004. That's obviously a very memorable season in Boston. What was it like going through that that season and obviously that October?
1: It was incredible. Just yeah, you know, I grew up following the Padres. Um, obviously, lived in San Diego all through my high school years, going to many Padre games. Just the Southern California. Um, fan experience and then moving to the northeast and getting into that gauntlet of you know coming off of the 03 disappointment uh, with big expectations going into 04 it was just such a, a neat experience for me to to move there and, and just be engrossed in all of it um, obviously professionally at the time i'm i'm trying to you know gain my footing um, as a co-scouting director because david Chad was there uh, who was doing more of the player personnel part of the job. I was doing more of the process systems infrastructure part of the job that first year. Um, So professionally, I was still trying to find my way and create relationships and, um, you know, put into place what would become our our process and our structure. But um, in addition to that, it was just so much fun to be in that environment. And of course, the team is doing very well. Um, You know, we didn't have a first round pick that year in the draft and actually dinner one night, we're sitting here actually after an Arizona state game, you know, David, Chad, and I, and one of our other cross checkers, and we're talking about the little shortstop at ASU and, you know, not huge upside and not plus tools and all that. And and I remember a question I asked David that night, I said, I said, if Pedroia has ends up having Jody Reed's career, is that going to be a good pick at pick 65 in the draft? And I'm like, I think that's a good pick. You're getting a lot of value and you're getting a big leaguer. And so obviously we ended up taking him and it, th- that first year of four was just so special for me personally and professionally for for so many reasons.
0: So I guess my next question that I had here you basically just answered you, you never envisioned you were drafting a future AL MVP when you took oh, Dustin Pedroia.
1: Absolutely not. I mean, we loved everything about the gamer. Um, you yeah, know, when you saw him the prior summer, that spring, he hit everybody. Yeah, you know, Mike Pelfrey, all the guys over the big big arms, huge velocity, spin. He just hit everybody, and he had this attitude that I'm the best player on the field. But as a scout, you're still looking at the run time. You're looking at the arm strength. And, you know, at that time, they were still using the, the bats that, you know, they weren't using the BB core bats or anything like that. And you're, you're questioning how much of it is just ASU, which is a great place to hit, how much of it is the bats they're using. Um, and they also wore those baggy uniforms. So, you know, Dustin Pedroia in a ASU baggy uniform, isn't a great look. You know, <laughs> right. It's not Byron Buxton that's walking around out there. So, right. yeah, there were a lot of things to, to poke at with him. And, you know, after we took him, there were a lot of scouts out in the industry that were like, you know, overdraft. How would you guys take that guy? And, of course, um, no, none of us thought he would have the career he ended up having. In
0: 2008, you were awarded the Red Sox Unsung Hero Award by the Boston chapter of the BBWA. What did that mean to you?
1: <laughs> a, it was... Kind of embarrassing. Um, certainly, it was a humbling thing. You know, I think the writers were just really wanting to recognize the, the entire staff. You know, and when I say that, I mean the player development staff, the, the scouting staff, um, for the roles that they all played in getting some of our players up to the big leagues and, and helping those guys become the players that they were, which ultimately helped the team have the success it had. So. I think they just had to find someone that they could give it to to, to represent all of those guys, and, and so and I was the person. Um, it was a very special evening because of you know, the baseball writers' dinner. It's a big deal up there. There's a lot of people out in the stands and or out in the audience, and um, you know, getting up and getting to accept the, the award on behalf of all our scouts and player development staff. It, it was a special feeling.
0: Amateur scouting, maybe more than any other area in baseball, seems to me like the most um sort of group effort uh, than anything else. Every time that I've spoken to anybody who's an amateur scouting director or whatever and you ask them about specific players, they're always quick to say well, this was the scout who saw him over here and this was the scout and this scout liked him here and it always seems about making sure that everybody gets the credit. Is it as as a cohesive effort as it seems?
1: Yeah, and, and it has to be if it's going to work correctly um, because of the what the job entails and the miles that you're putting in and the time that you're putting into it, all with the understanding that, you know, the likelihood of you getting that player is very, very small, but you still have to put in the right work, go through the the right processes of it. And and that's, what's going to put your organization in position to make the best decision. So you can't be selfish about your work, even though, I mean, we're all human beings. Like we, we, I don't want to say we fall in love with players, but, you know, when you're investing as much time as you are and you're getting into homes and you're you're spending that time you know talking to coaches and talking to counselors about you know who this person is that you're going to recommend to your team it's hard not to get emotionally invested in wanting that player and when you don't get them yeah you can look back and say wow I remember that day I spent you know driving five hours to go meet with them that night you know I could have been at my daughter's dance recital but you know I, I took the 250 mile drive to go meet with them and I didn't get them. We all sign up for it. We understand that's part of it. And that's why the organization wins when you have a good draft, even if it's not your players. And I remember the first year in Boston, we did our Scout of the Year award, and uh, we gave it to a gentleman who didn't have a single player drafted that that year. But his work was so good. Uh, He was such a professional. He needed to be recognized for what an outstanding job he did, even though he didn't get a single player drafted. And uh, I think once our staff saw that, you know, that helped. They was like, wow, this isn't just about your, your guys, the podium. Guys. Right. This is truly about just how good your work is. I'm
0: always amazed at the amateur scouting process in general, just because the number of high schools, the number of junior colleges, the number of colleges, how, how do you make sure or do your best effort? Obviously, you can't cover everything. You can't right. see every player. So how difficult a process is it to make sure that you're seeing not only as many players as you can, but the right players?
1: Yeah, it's, yeah, the process is, I don't want to say it's gotten easier. It's, it's changed a little bit in the last five to ten years just because there's so much more information now that you have on these the junior college schools and some of the NAIs NAIAs and D2s. But yeah, you've got to make that decision of, you know as you know, we're, being the only sport that holds their draft in season, uh, that makes the, your logistics and your planning just so important every single day. Um, and where you're going to go, and you've got to look at you know weather, and you've got to look at pitching rotations that change or, or if a player gets hurt. So a lot of the process, yes, is just fanning out and making sure you're seeing how, as much as you can uh, throughout the spring. But then it's also, okay, how do we use these days to go back and see the guys two, three times that you're really hoping that you can, are going to be in your mix? And I think the further you get away from the first round, it's certainly harder to do that. I mean, whether you're picking 24th or picking 12th, you can kind of give you know, have those handful of guys that say, I'm going to go back and see these guys three times because one of them will end up in our mix. But the further away from that as you're getting into the second, third, fourth, you've really got to rely on you know, your scouting reports, the conviction they have on makeup and things like that, to how they're going to you know, really expend their time the rest of the or the rest of the scouting season
0: are there times in the middle or late rounds of a draft where somebody gets drafted and you go i never heard of this guy
1: oh yeah absolutely <laughs> um, absolutely we've actually got and it happens with every team right and it, i mean every team this happens too but we do have, we have one of our players now in major league camp uh, his name's trent Gimbroni um you know d2 guy we took out of i think it was troy or delta state a couple of years ago and yeah, he went out to double a last year and he's yeah he was close to being a 2020 guy before he got hurt. And now he's you know going bonkers in major league camp right now. And I've had a few of my friends with other teams saying, wow, we didn't have that guy turned in. And it just, it happens everywhere. Cause there's so many players getting right. drafted. You can't see everybody. You can't see everybody. And, and um, unfortunately, yeah, it's just a byproduct of the draft.
0: So you've worked with Theo in a couple of different places, now three different places. What have you learned most from him?
1: That, uh, you know, he used to, he had this saying in Boston, and I won't say it on the podcast, but one of the my takeaways from him is that we don't know blank um you know you certainly want to balance out like having uh, the ability to to look at things that you've done well and 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 respecting that and congratulating yourself and your staff for things you've done well but at the same time like keeping that don't not not getting complacent and like it's not good enough we've got to keep charging forward um like i said earlier you know he's he's one of the biggest, if not the most competitive person I've ever been around and combined with his knowledge and the way his mind works, that can make it tough sometimes to come to work because there are days you want to feel good about how things are going. And, and he's kind of always there to remind you, um, hey, it's not good enough yet. Yeah, you know, we got to keep got to keep charging forward. And so I think from him, it's just a, this constant quest for always finding better ways um, to do things, better ways to evaluate better systems that we can improve upon And it's just this uh, constant hunger and desire for knowledge.
0: I've had a lot of guys on this podcast who have come through Theo's front office at some point, and every single one of them has talked about the culture that he creates within the front office and how that's the best thing about working there. What is it about a Theo Epstein front office culture that stands out above others?
1: Well, I think there's definitely a trust factor in that, you know, people he puts in positions, whether it's Jed, uh, whether it's me in my role, uh, whether it's the farm director, he tr- entrusts them to go work and to go do their thing. And at the same time, you also understand that he's also going to challenge you on why you're making certain recommendations. Um, there is a collegial uh, environment to it, for sure. I mean, we give each other a lot of, you know, crap. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's a work hard, play hard element to it, for sure. Um, You just have to understand that he's going to give you the freedom to go work. He trusts you to show your ability, to show the ability and faith in your staff. But at the same time, he's also going to come in and ask why. And you better be prepared with some very good (laughs) resource and backup to tell him why you're feeling a certain way or why you're going to recommend we make a change in player development or recommend a player on a pro scouting trade or whatnot. And um, he's going to challenge you a lot on it because he wants to make sure you're convicted in whatever it is uh, before you enact.
0: Uh, Aside from Pedroia, who obviously was an MVP, you've also drafted some other players, uh, Jacoby Ellsbury, Jed Lowry, Clay Buchholz, Justin Masterson, Josh Reddick, guys who have had very good big league careers. Knowing that the draft is what it is, how rewarding is it when you have that conviction to take a player and he proves you right?
1: It's awesome. I mean, I think for anybody who touches that player from the evaluation standpoint to you know, the player development staff that have been with them from day one, um, yeah, I think collectively, it's just a, a great feeling. You feel um, great for the kid. You feel great for that scout. Uh, you feel great for all those hitting or pitching coaches that have been with them along the way. And again, that's what we all sign up for, to help the major league team, to help a player get better. And, and when you hit on them, you feel great. You know, to turn that on the other side of that, right. of course, I mean, you, you're going to have so many players that you miss on, and oh, we'll get it, to that too. <laughs> yeah, as much as that like gets into your, it just keeps you up at night. Is also what what kind of drives you to to keep checking your systems, keep checking your processes to to ask why we missed on this guy. And so there is that balance of it for sure. I think a lot of scouting directors would probably say to you that as great as it feels for to hit on your guys, um, a lot of the ones that you miss on. Uh, Those are the ones that stick with you and and stick in your gut. It's like a poker player, right? You don't remember your wins, just your bad beats? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, and I certainly do. We all have those. I I don't want to call them skeletons, but you do have those (laughs) that you're like, wow, where did we go wrong here? Right.
0: Uh, Six years after you started with the Red Sox, you went back to San Diego, worked as Jed Hoyer's assistant GM, uh, oversaw amateur scouting and player development. Was it a difficult decision to leave Boston?
1: It was, uh, just because... my son was born there and and uh obviously you're you know you're a team that's gonna have success they were set up to have success for for the uh, foreseeable future at the same time it was such a great opportunity for me to go back home Um, obviously jed getting his first general manager's job uh, me going with him as an assistant gm you know at that time i had been overseeing scouting for six years and which i love so much and to this day i just love it a lot but it was also an opportunity to expand my responsibilities and and uh, you know, oversee a player development staff, which I had never done before. Um, obviously, be Jed's uh, assistant uh, and be even that much more intimately involved with Major League decision making. So and and the ability to go home uh, and do it in my hometown. Uh, so all those factors, you know, lined up and. As tough as it was, it became more of a no-brainer for me to, to have that opportunity.
0: 75 and sunny every day is probably hard to turn away, right? Exactly. Compared you know, to Boston and Winters? <laughs> you
1: know, and my, you know, my mom's like going to – she was a season ticket holder for many, many years. And still, she was still going to all these games. So it was just a lot of things lined up where I was like, this is too good to, to pass up.
0: Two years later, you moved to a place that has some opposite weather at times from yes. San Diego. Uh, you joined the Cubs as Senior Vice President of Scouting and Player Development uh with Theo with Jed. Your first three drafts, uh you selected Albert Moore Jr., Chris Bryant, Kyle Schwaber in the first round. We've heard about you know how the Cubs system was down, everything else. Was there a lot of pressure to turn that system around and try to do it, you know, on, on a rapid pace?
1: Yeah, I, I, I didn't look at it as pressure pressure at all, really. Um I looked at it as like, wow what an awesome opportunity it is to come here, this town, this city, you know been a hundred years, whatever it been at the time. Um it was more of a, uh, a great opportunity to really put your imprint all over the organization. And, you know, in a way we had a lot more, a uh, lot more work to do in terms of instituting a lot of the processes we wanted to do both in scouting, player development, major league acquisition. Um, so we knew there'd be a lot of heavy lifting involved. Uh, we knew it wouldn't be easy because there, there were a lot of people that had been here a long time and, and you, we knew we were going to have to say goodbye to some of those people and that's never easy. Um, but at the same time, there was an excitement of bringing in people from other organizations, or maybe people you've worked with before that you think were really talented and could help take um, help us go forward. And and we were able to do that. And certainly, yeah, we we're picking way at the top of the draft those few years. So you're you better hit on some of those guys. And and uh, we were able to do that early.
0: When you went to Chicago, Theo said of you, "Quote: Jason McLeod is the rarest commodity in the industry. He's an impact evaluator of baseball talent." to you what makes for a good talent evaluator.
1: I think some of it hey again you you're beholden to what's left at, at your pick, you know, when you're getting into the, from a draft perspective, but I do think there you, you you certainly have to have conviction. I think you certainly have to have vision. And you have to ask yourself the right questions of, you know, why are you envisioning this player to be that in the future? And so for me, I think a lot of it is just that ability to kind of step back a little bit and see the forest through the trees when you're looking at so many players and, and how do you separate them out? Um, how do you, when you're making a comparable to a, a former major leaguer or a current major leaguer, um, are you asking yourself the right questions? And then ultimately, you've just got to have track record. Um, and that doesn't always apply sir, you know, simply to the players that you were drafting or that you ended up drafting. I mean, I think you know for Theo to make that statement when he did, of of course, it'd be humbled for him to say something like that. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, we had had, you know, 15 years of a lot of conversations about players. Uh, And of course, I mean, a lot of us are wrong a lot of the times, but I think that in and of itself, like the track record of it for him um, and knowing, you know, how I get to an evaluation of a player and the things that I talk and walk through myself with before I you know, hit publish on the report. I think he used all those things. And that's how I look at evaluators as well. And the tough thing about our, I think our, our uh, industry is it's, I think it's hard to look at scouts on other teams and say, well, he must be a great evaluator because he selected this player and they got him. You don't know what led to the process of it. I think to, to make a statement like that, I feel like you need to be in the trenches with that person for a long time and talk through a lot of players with them.
0: We all like to talk about each team's top 30 prospects and there's more ink and and online space devoted to prospects now than maybe ever before. Uh, As a player development guy, you've got seven, eight, nine affiliates, 200 players. Um, How do you try to keep tabs on all of them beyond just seeing their stats?
1: Yeah, a lot of different ways, of course. I mean, yeah, I always... I try not to ever lose sight of just me seeing the players and talking to our staff constantly about them and, and you know being intimately involved in, in um, their player development plans. Uh, certainly with R&D and a lot of the information that teams have now, you're able to, to weave that into the evaluation of the players. Um, but most of it for me is you know, using that information, using their performance. Uh, the scouting reports that we've had on them, entering their organization to just the day-to-day information that we get back from whether it be daily game reports, uh, your strength reports from your strength staff. Um, And again, for me, a lot of it's just talking to the players myself or seeing them myself as well.
0: Analytics have obviously become a very prevalent part of the game at the big league level. When and how do you begin educating minor league players about them?
1: That's interesting, you know, because of this generation, um, a lot of them are aware of it. You know, they're on Twitter. They're seeing a lot of the the thing that's, <clears throat> things that are out there on social media. We um, started trying the education component, you know, last year, like kind of just dipping their toes into the water somewhat. And then this offseason, uh, we actually had classes that were held by our R&D staff. Um, just educational things, not over... Inundating them with anything. But, you know, when they see things on TV, whether it's at a major league game, they're seeing statcast information, or of course, you know, they all know what the launch angle exit v or pitchers are wondering about spin axis and things like that. You yeah, we definitely wanted to have a uh, kind of a metrics 101 of sorts. And uh, so we had some educational classes last month that, that we found very beneficial. And, you know, the players are certainly speaking the language and just wanting to educate them more so they understand what it is that they're hearing, what that means. But also from from our standpoint, if we're making recommendations based off some of the the data out there, um, they certainly have an understanding of why.
0: The minor leagues are a tough road for a lot of kids. When a player is struggling or down, how tough is it to keep them sort of focused and you know, eye on the prize kind of thing.
1: Yeah, there are you know, a lot of different ways. And I know teams certainly were one of them. Uh, you know, we they have mental skills departments. And so uh, I think we have a staff of four now. And, yeah, you know, so they're they're trying to preempt a lot of that by their, their mental skills strengthening programs that, that are out there. And yeah, at the same time, yeah, it's tough. A lot of these guys are competitors and, and uh, you know, they have people tweeting about their performances. You know, fans that were at the game are saying, "Oh, so and so went 0 for 4 with three strikeouts," and they'll put video of it on there. Right? Yeah, you know, this is an era that for these guys, they're just growing up with it, and they have to you know, deal with all of that. So, yeah, you know, we certainly most of it is through the mental skills program. A lot of it is just trying to keep players focused on process rather than result. Uh, and again, that's that's easier said than done. And you know, the other last week, I actually texted one of our our uh, minor league guys a, uh, you yeah, know, the John Wooden quote about just, just being, getting a little better every day. And over time, you will be a lot better. Just because I was like, I know you're trying so hard to get there now. Just remember the process of this. So I just sent him the, the Wooden quote and, you know, he was like, wow, thank you so much. Yeah, you know, of course he know, he was aware of John Wooden. He's like, then he's, you know, holding himself accountable. Like, yeah, I do try to do way too much too soon. i got to realize my career is you know, this far out in front of me. So it could be something as small as that, but but primarily just try to keep them you know, mental, mentally as, t- as strong as they can be. The
0: Cubs became only the third team in Big League history to win at least 100 games within four years of losing 100. Did you guys think that turnaround was going to happen as quickly as it did?
1: No, I think if you talk to, to Theo and Jed, uh, it probably started happening a year earlier than we expected. Um, you know, when 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 Chris and Kyle and those guys were coming through the organization. Obviously, a lot changed when we were able to sign uh, John Lester, and yeah, you know, we really hit on the Jake Arrieta trade. I think those things just all you know came together at one time. And and you know, Jorge Soler was doing very well when he was coming up, and and uh, you know, it all culminated in that 2015 run. And, and Jake was just out of this world, you know, with that Cy Young season that he had, and and our young players were. Were coming up and helping and addison russell was able to come up and and uh and help the club you know so i think things were happening that we didn't expect that soon but it certainly changed the timeline for us and um so when we had the experience of the 2015 playoff um you know, which was came to it was such a great run that came to a ceremoniously quick ending when the Mets swept us um yeah, it just fed the hunger for it for the next year. And then those young guys had that experience, and, and uh, 2016 was just the phenomenal season that it became.
0: Front offices are so analytically driven in this era. Your background's in scouting. Yeah. Do you think that scouting has become somewhat underappreciated in terms
1: of the game itself? I don't know. If I'm I'm biased to it. Because sure, of I'm course. just Blast. so biased. Yeah. Um, in a way, I, I do because – I I think as as we as an industry as we are as we're um equipped to measure so much more i almost feel like it's you can fall into losing focus on are things important because you can measure it or can you measure it because it's important right so um you know with the scouts themselves you know to me they're still the lifeblood uh they're still the guys that are out at the ballparks seeing the things that can't be measured um you know the instincts the game awareness the makeup of the player which is such the big separator um unless like it's rare to find the ultra tooled guy that has the makeup to, that goes with it and so of course you yeah, know we're in this era where we're going to get have so much more information from you know the performance standpoint from you know a lot of colleges having trackmans installed at their fields junior colleges have trackman at their fields sometimes and yeah, you, know, you go to high school games, they'll have the hit tracks machines and things like that. So, knowing that, I I feel it's even more uh, beneficial for good scouting departments. Like the teams that have the better actual scouts on the ground, I think are going to be the teams that have uh, the competitive advantage.
0: You uh you mentioned 2016, you went through 2004 with the Red Sox, you went through 2016 with the Cubs to historic yeah. seasons. What was 2016 especially October like for you
1: it was unreal and you know just you know how how uh, fortunate and spoiled am I to be in both places <laughs> when when they've had this you know, historically long uh, run of, of not winning and you know, and in both instances you had the uh you know the Red Sox coming back from 30 and the Yankees in 04 and then yeah you, know, you have us being down three games to one to Cleveland and even the LA series you know with, we down two to one of the Dodgers and not scoring runs and not, I mean, there were so many instances where the team could have folded, didn't. Um, so going through that and, and having the experience of, of coming back, winning in Cleveland, um, I'll never, I mean, the parade was unlike anything I'd ever seen. And, and again, being so fortunate to go through two parades in Boston. Um, I don't know. Everything just was so perfect about that parade at, in Chicago. The weather couldn't have been better. It was, you know, crystal blue skies, um, just the millions and millions of people that showed up, you know, just, it, it was something that those of us who all obviously all experienced will never forget. And then for the five or six of us that were in both places, um, again, we just got to you know, count our lucky stars. That we were in the right place at the right time. So
0: what, when you look at them, it's a very superficial question, which is your favorite <laughs> ring?
1: Wow. Um, yeah, that is, a, that's a tough question. I, <laughs> it's, it's probably the, the, you know, the, it's easy to say 16 cause it's the freshest one in my mind right now. And I think all organizations I've seen all these rings over the years and they, they just keep getting bigger and bigger. So, um, it's funny. I've got the three rings and I've got three kids and all three of them want the, the Chicago ring cause they're old enough now that I've gone through it. But yeah, they're, t- they're all special, but you yeah, know, the, the Wrigley one, um, combination of just being fresh combination of being even the longer you know period of time between uh, World Series championships probably stands out.
0: 2014 you withdrew your name from consideration for the Padres GM search again another chance to go home again. Uh, You said you wanted to finish the job in Chicago but was there a part of you that was intrigued by the idea of going to run your your boyhood
1: team? Absolutely Um, of course I mean that's again that was my dream growing up you know and just kind of having these grand visions, but, uh, you know, it, it wasn't that tough if it, because it was San Diego that made it a little more emotional to make the decision. And again, I mean, I was just incredibly, um, just humble that they even called to, to talk to me about it because I just know how, how few jobs there are in that, that type of role where you can have that kind of impact on an organization. But, um, yeah, we just, a lot of things were percolating in the organization at the time that you know, we were seeing, very soon we were going to be good and we had this special stable of young players um, it was Chicago it was getting it to a chance to do it again with Theo and Jed and everyone else that we had brought in here and, and so that you know coupled with my kids were young they're in, and they still are young but in Chicago just uh, the timing didn't line up and you know professionally personally it worked out great
0: after the 16th season you did interview with the twins mm-hmm. for their GM job uh, what did you take from that experience?
1: It was great because that was, that was the first time I had sat down with a team um, and, you know, I, I liked the, uh, the family component of it uh, with the Polad family owning the team and uh, kind of like the Midwest vibe to it, the city and, and those fans up there. So for me, it was a great experience. Like I said, it was the first time going through it. Um, I appreciated uh, getting that opportunity. David St. Peter, his staff, they were great. Um, and I learned a lot from it as well.
0: You were linked this past off season to the Mets job, to the Giants job. I think you actually did interview with the Giants, right? Um, as much as you love what you do in Chicago and the people you work with, as you start to interview for more of these jobs, is there a sense of disappointment when you don't get one of them?
1: I don't know if disappointment's the right word. And you know, the, the, the Giants experience was another one that was great for me. Um, whereas the when I when I was fortunate enough to interview with Minnesota. Um, I didn't do it just for the sake of getting the experience, but it was, it was more of a, uh, yeah, I'd like to look into this. Whereas the Giants experience was different. Um, I was able to get through a couple of rounds of interviews and, uh, you know, it's a marquee franchise. And, and so even again, the, the chance to, to sit and talk about that type of position with that type of uh, organization, I was incredibly humbled for that. But, um, yeah, there is a natural disappointment, you know, because you feel like, um, you have the the skills and the leadership qualities to, to be in a position like that. And, uh, you know, I think that the opportunity hopefully will come again someday. And um, But at the same time, again, there's 30 of those jobs. And, yeah, you know, I am really humbled just to have the opportunity to, to interview for it.
0: You have said there's a time I do see myself in a situation where I could possibly be running an organization. How important is it for you to get that chance to be a GM someday?
1: Yeah, you know, if I don't ever get... The job—it's—it's it's not going to be a professional disappointment for me. I, I've been so blessed in this game to, to, to work with the organizations I have. I mean, if you—if I saw myself 30 years ago and said you're going to work for your boyhood team in in a high-level executive position, which is the Padres, which I was able to do, uh, you're also going to work for two historic franchises in you know pretty important decision-making positions and win World Series with them. Um, I would have. Told you that you know go sell ice to Eskimos. There's no way that's going to happen. So yeah, I'm I'm just so happy with how things have gone. Of course, I would love that opportunity if it comes to me someday. But it's not something like I'm going to look back on my career and say it was a disappointment if it doesn't happen.
0: All right, I want to dig back into amateur scouting a little bit. How many games do you need to see an amateur player before you have? I mean, it's probably you still you probably never have a, a true idea of what kind of yeah. player. But before you think you have a, a feel for what kind of player that can be.
1: It depends. I think it all depends on the look you get. What kind of day did you have with them? Um, there are days you show up and you can see five at-bats um, and walk away feeling like you don't know anything about the player. There are days you walk in and it's just everything aligns where the, the pregame work is good. You see, If you're going to see an infielder, let's say, he gets a lot of ground balls in pregame. During batting practice, uh, he's taking balls live off the bat. You get some really good game abs from him where you're seeing him compete in the box or you're seeing him recognize pitches, recognize spin, all those types of things. And you might only need one game. And you, you just look at the swing mechanics. You look at uh, leadership ability. You look at game awareness, all these things. And you might you might feel good and say, I don't need to see him anymore. I, I saw him play. And it's less to do with like game performance. I mean, maybe he went 0 for 4. But right. you saw great swings. You saw hard contact. Um, you got to see him do things defensively, run all of these things, and, and you might feel good there. Other guys, they could go four for four, but you're just not believing what you're seeing, so to speak. Maybe it's a a swing flaw or a swing mechanics or approach. Um, you're not sure defensively, and I mean, some I've gone back on guys three or four times sometimes where I'm like, I'm just not seeing this. But there's also an element to – you just have to rely on your staff and the other guys that are seeing him. And, you know, you, you mentioned Jacoby Ellsbury earlier. I saw Jacoby four times that spring. He had an incredible junior year at Oregon State. I literally was the cooler every time he came <laughs> in there. I, I, I think he went maybe two for 15 in the four games that I was at, and some of the contact was, like, getting beat deep and chopping balls into the ground. Um and he had a phenomenal year. And so I remember one game, I took Theo to the game. We're at Washington. I took Theo to the game. His first at-bat, I think he popped up. Second at-bat, he grounded out to, to second. And I said, Theo, I told you. And he's, so as he comes up his third time. And Theo goes, Jay, do me a favor. Just walk behind the dugout. Don't even watch him hit. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. He's like, turn around. Go behind the dugout. Sure enough, that at-bat, he hits a triple in the <laughs> So I'm
0: surprised they let you watch the games you know, once and, you get to the big leagues. Again, I mean, I love the
1: explosiveness, love the athlete. And, and for me, it was just like, hey, he didn't perform. The swings weren't great when I saw him, but our, our, the rest of our staff were just – and I had the video too. So, I, I mean, I saw what everyone else was seeing. And a lot of times you just got to remove yourself from from that evaluation of – not that I didn't like him, but just the offensive – offensively he didn't swing the bat well when I saw him.
0: There's been a lot written and talked about. Uh, the Cubs' inability to develop everyday players beyond those first rounders—the three we mentioned—and Ian Happ. Mm-hmm. Um are you affected by criticism at all, or do you just accept that that's part of the game?
1: Yeah, I'd be lying if I didn't say I wasn't affected. I am human, so <laughs> um, so yeah, you do see those things, and um, yeah, I guard against being defensive because you can learn from it too. I mean, you can't you can get really involved so much in your own players that you don't you're not able to be that objective as much as you try to tell yourself you are, but you tell yourself you are being objective. But yeah, I mean, I think you know, we, we do a really good job. I feel of being hyper aware to that, um, you know, position players after the first round, obviously the pitching I'm sure we'll get into. Um, and so, you know, again, we look at, is it a process thing? Is it something we're doing player development related? That's not, um, that we're not hitting on certain guys with. And, I think that, you know, there are byproducts of why did you pass on certain position players? Was it because we were trying to force pitching in the draft? And why did we walk by this guy? And um, at the same time, we do feel good about, especially our last couple of drafts, about players we've taken later and what we feel they're going to do in the big leagues for for this team. And one of them I, you know, I mentioned earlier. So, you know, I, th- I think there is kind of a ebb and flow to it for whatever reason uh, in each draft. Um A, you're always, of course, beholden to the talent pool for that year. But I think with us, we've kind of gone with, well, we really need to hit on pitching. Let's take more. And it's probably caused us to walk by some position players.
0: You mentioned the pitching. Your first six drafts of the Cubs, 75% of your picks in the first 10 rounds were pitchers. Mm -hmm. You guys, 2016, took 13 of your first 14. 2017, it was seven of the first eight. You obviously know all these, but for the listeners. Uh, How much of the process of drafting pitching is luck? Is them staying healthy? Is you know pitching pitchers are so fragile in yes. general, and pitching is such a specific skill, and and to be able to move up against the tougher competition that you've never seen before, um, you know, if it was so easy, we'd have right thirty exactly. teams with great pitchers. So what goes into trying to trying to draft and develop a pitcher?
1: Yeah, for yeah, uh, I made this has been a big question with the Chicago media, obviously, but I'm aware. Um, <laughs> You know, and I've made these these statements. I think early on in our time here, those first couple of drafts, 12, 13, and maybe even fourteen, we were, I think we were being a little too um, like fine with the the evaluate, not the evaluation with the actual selection. Yeah, we were. Does he do this and does he do this and do we feel like he's going to be healthy for five to six years? And and uh, in our case, it probably it did cause us to to give up on some upside and some athleticism there um so that's certainly some of it just we we put too many checks in place for us early uh the last few years we've you know re how we're selecting those types of pitchers and um we've gone a little more with upside and taken on a little more risk with maybe guys who had an injury in college or something and and we're finally now bearing that out in our system. I know that they haven't gotten to the major leagues yet, but, uh, yeah, this is, now we've been here seven years now. So, you know, walking out on our backfields now, yeah, you know, we've had live BPs going in minor league camp the last few days and, you know, I'm pretty much on every field. Like I'm actually excited about the guys that are out there, like excited about their upside, the stuff they're, they're showing. And these are guys that are going to be in AAA this year now. So, you know, There's there's that to it. There's also just the sheer fact, like you were mentioning earlier, man, it's hard to develop pitching. It really is. And, you know, due to A, it's just being tough, it takes time. Um, You know, a lot of the drafted pitching that are in sitting and starting rotations, I think almost half of it comes out of the first round. And we weren't swimming in those waters early on. We We were, you know, taking position players and bats. So I also think it's a combination of that, that we just weren't taking those pitchers up top early. Um, We have done that a little later. We've gone, like I said, a little more upside. And and, um, so now we're excited about some of the guys that we have coming soon.
0: You prepare all year for draft day. What's it like inside the draft room? Is it just chaos? Is it nervous energy? Is it a laser focus? Is it all of the above?
1: It's a little all of the above and it's changed a little bit over the years because of the R&D, you know, uh, presence with the modeling and all that. And and how much more information we have, you're not having these as much of the big arguments on the unknown because you know a little more. Um, at the same time, there just the days that can be long. You've got a lot of players up on the board, and you know teams do what, things differently. And you know, one day you might just have a bucket of players that let's just discuss college outfielders today for the next three hours, and then let's let's move to something else so that we don't get so bogged down in it. Um, at the same time, it's like the one day out of the year that you get to choose the players so you understand the importance of it. There still are emotionally charged moments in there. And, and you know, Theo is one guy. He's been like this from day one. You know, I've, I've heard in other teams, like, you know, the president of the GM might bop, you know, hop in and out of the room at given times. He's in there the whole time. And he's in there grinding on you on, you know, why do you have this seventh round? college pitcher in that group over there. And there are times where in my mind, I'm like, Theo, don't you have more important things to be doing (laughs) with our major league team than questioning where we have this seventh round college pitcher right now. But yeah, that's part of what makes him who he is. And and, uh, we certainly have had our share of heated arguments over the years. That's for sure.
0: Last question for you. Right now, as we speak, your signed business card is available on eBay for $10 and 49 cents. Great value or overpriced?
1: Well, what's hilarious about this, my wife teases me about this because she – well, I don't want to say it. She found one of me from prior when I was coaching, and I think I had a mustache at that time. (laughs) So, oh, this like, is a business card. Oh, business You're card, a business I, card oh, not baseball De- card. Definitely, definitely an overvalue this <laughs> time. So, for sure.
0: Baseball cards, at least, you know, that's, you got a picture <laughs> of me at least on that one, right? Exactly. Yeah, the things the internet will sell, right? Absolutely. Jason Absolutely. McLeod, from Chicago Cubs, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me on.
0: Many thanks to Jason McLeod for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. Coming up in future episodes this season, I'll sit down with Ray's Vice President of Baseball Operations, James Click, Rockies Assistant General Manager, Zach Rosenthal, DBAC's Assistant GM, Jared Porter, and many more executives around the league. You can search for executive access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access.
1: Until next time, I'm Mark Feinstein.